Welcome to Food Friday Leftovers, a podcast about all the goodies left over from Food Friday. I'm Dave Hopper. And I'm Ashley Kinsey. Tune in each week as we cover culinary topics such as food trucks, local food, pizza, veggies, beer, and wine. You hungry yet? Huh, I'm always hungry. Well, on that note, Ashley, tell us what's in the fridge this week. This week, we've got some delicious Louisiana-inspired Southern delicious food from Hattie's Hattie's Restaurant in Saratoga Springs. We're talking with Chef Jasper Alexander of Hattie's. He's also the co-owner, and he has written a book, Hattie's Restaurant Cookbook. So thank you so much for joining us it's today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I wanted to start with the first question. Um sure. With Louisiana and its history uh-huh. and the Louisiana Purchase, and there's there's a melting pot of influence that starts with, you know, French cooking. And then because it's in the South, you've got some even some Caribbean influence and Absolutely. everything kind of crosses over. And just last week, we were talking to um, Rocco DeFazio. Yep. And for Italian Christmas, they do something that is very similar to a beignet. And so with all this crossover, what are some of your favorites where you've seen a recipe in Southern cooking or specifically Louisiana cooking, and then you've thought, oh, this is kind of like this. There's tons. I mean, you know, as you said, Louisiana is a, is a huge melting pot, and it's got enormous French, Spanish, African, and Caribbean influences. And, you know, a lot of that is unfortunately sort of marred with, with slave trade and some things like mm-hmm. that, which kind of put a, a negative twist on it. But the result was this was this amazing cuisine that had all these, you know, indigenous, really authentic indigenous characteristics that all blended together in you know the southern United States with the available produce that was what was there and so things like uh, like jambalaya for instance which is a really classic dish it's very very similar to Spanish paella it's also very similar to a French dish called uh, pilou which is a, hmm. which is a rice you know a rice dish and you know almost every because rice is so uh, you know, so such a huge staple all over the world. You know, there's lots of dishes where you know, like in the Caribbean, a rose cone pollo or a rose cone anything. I mean, mm-hmm. there's you know, I mean, the, the Caribbean has a huge you know, from Puerto Rico to Jamaica, they all have these these dishes where cook protein and tomatoes or okra or, or you know, sweet potatoes, some some sort of you know, indigenous vegetable and protein in uh, in a broth or a stock with the rice and all in one dish, and and mm-hmm. it's. Uh, you know, not only a matter of convenience, but it's a, a way to really develop flavor and, and cook flavor into that rice. So that's the best you know, thing. You see ever. that, you see that you know, <laughs> all over the place. Um, and, uh, you know, gumbos are the same. There's lots of uh, lots of dishes, you know, between, you know, Creole and, and Cajun gumbos are a little bit different. Uh, typically, uh, a Cajun gumbo will be the sort of more rustic version where a Creole gumbo will be slightly more refined, maybe less mm. room or tomato. Uh, things of that nature, or maybe the ingredients will be things like, you know, duck and and fowl, as opposed to maybe, you know, uh, you know, just sausage or or side meat, pork, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I did not know that there was a difference. Yeah, I know yeah. that they had looked different, but I figured it was just you know, people making it their own way. Yeah, or... I mean, it's really it's it's sort of one's a little bit more upcountry and one's a little more down you know down home. So it's. And there, there, there's not, there's not distinct lines between these things. I mean, like everything else, uh, it's a real blending. But those are the broad strokes uh, between the two. Cooking southern food in the north. Yep. Do people have different expectations up here than they would if you were cooking in Louisiana? I f- would assume so. I mean, you know, there's a obviously there's a lot of transplants and and snowbirds that travel up and down. Um, you know, we were talking uh, on the on the Food Friday a little bit earlier about cornbread, which is a good example. Mm-hmm. 
most sort of traditionalist southern cornbread makers would scoff at the use of white flour or <laughs> sugar in their cornbread and they have yeah. actually no place and right <laughs> off the rip you know they discount it but in the instance of cornbread you know like a lot of our foods they've you know some of the the integral nature of the of the food has been stripped out of it in the processing you know in mm-hmm. our in our effort to further refine and make things easier so you know, if white flour was never bleached and, and white all-purpose flour. I mean, that was something we made up. So, uh, and cornmeal being stripped and wheat flour being stripped of all its germ and its husk and its, you know, and all that is, is part of what made, you know, these breads so good. And, and cornbread is the similar to the same. It's it's tough to make a cornbread uh, that has the same sort of, it's going to be really dense texture. if you don't. Yeah, the texture is not going to be right mm-hmm. if you used a processed cornbread and no flour. So in the South, where you have you know a few options in most areas of some really good cornmeal, that's not really an issue, you know, because the cornmeal hasn't been stripped of all its you know outer bran properties, and and you can you can use that, uh, and that helps give the cornbread flavor and depth of flavor and texture and all these things. And then you know you don't you have less of a need for flour. There's also less of a need for sugar if the cornmeal has more flavor itself and isn't just sort of this bitter bland meal that's had all its good good stuff stripped out of it. Mm-hmm. I have a, a short story about that because my grandmother is from the south and she when she goes to travel and visit friends because she's a transplant and uh-huh. now she's up here um, she buys in bulk a specific type of cornmeal <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. and <laughs> and she'll get like six things of it this yep. you know yep. A, a foot tall yeah. and put it in the freezer yeah, because absolutely. nothing tastes the same. No, it's and it's exact that is exactly not, it. Yeah. That is exactly the reason why. Yeah. And the same with flour. I mean I had a I had a discussion in one of the cities where we were doing this book tour about about baking biscuits and flour and and uh, actually it was a reporter from the Times Picayune in Louisiana and she did a story on biscuits. And you know, she asked me, Well how do you you know, you talk a lot about biscuits in your book and and, you know, biscuits are an integral part of Southern cooking without question. I mean, if it's probably the most marquee item. I mean, everybody talks about mm-hmm. biscuits. And, you know, how do you get them so light and what are the tricks and the trades? And and there's a few tricks, but and usually most of those have to do with just not overworking the dough, you know, having a deft mm-hmm. hand and, and a light touch. But one of the tricks that there is available to the people in the South that is not available up here is, is white lily flour. And I hate to, to plug a brand mm-hmm. of flour, but... But white lily flour is ground much finer and much lighter and ounce for ounce, cup for cup weighs much less than a standard, you know, hard wheat uh, flour from from the north. And it makes a difference. And the reason, you know, if I could find a source for bulk white lily flour, I'd bring it into the restaurant. But they don't, you know, white lily knows it's sitting on a, you know, a, on a mm-hmm. good thing. And they package it in five pound bags. And that's that's that. But I use, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 400 pounds of flour a week. So I can't use 400 <laughs> that would pounds, be a pounds, lot. <laughs> pounds of flour a week in five pound bags. That just, that, you know, it just Each course you'd need to use a bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It just really cooks up lighter and fluffier, and it's because the flour is is made of soft wheat, so it's got less gluten, uh, and uh, and it's fine then milled to a much much finer texture. And it just you know if you had a cup of a cup of normal flour weighs about six ounces, and a cup of white lily flour weighs about three and a half four. Oh so wow! So it's significantly lighter, and uh, and that just makes a difference. I mean, it just makes a difference. You know, uh, you can't. Wow. That's not something that you can. 
that you can, you know, no amount of sifting is going to give you that <laughs> amount of levity, you know. So, uh, but there's ways around it. You know, it's not a, it's not, it's, you know, and I, and I make a point of saying this in book, just because you can't get white lily flour doesn't mean your biscuits are going to be horrible. Yeah. You just got to, you know, you've got to have a light hand and you can use cake flour, which has, is made of more soft wheat than hard wheat. And, and that will also have less natural gluten in it. So even if you overwork the dough, there's just not as much protein in it. So it's just mm-hmm. not going to develop gluten like a, like a harder wheat flour would. There are a few favorites of mine, uh-huh. um, but I have one question. Yes. Every time I see somebody making a, sh- a crab boil, mm-hmm. they put, you know, whatever ingredients, potato, corn, yep. Yep. Uh, seafood, why do they not reserve the liquid? For use at a later date? Not for use at a later date, but like to go along with it. Like if I'm going to have the potato and put some of the liquid on the potato or something like that. Well, typically, I always see people dump it out. Well, it's sort of a factor of, well, it's, it's, so it depends on how you do it. So there's usually a couple of ways to do crab or shrimp boil. And the first key is to make the boil itself, to make the liquid. So you need to have, you know, typically water, but, but stock would work as well. And then you need to flavor that with, you know, a large amount of spices, things like cayenne and paprika and chili powders and garlic, lots of garlic, lots mm-hmm. and lots of garlic, lemons to, to provide some acidity. And you, you boil that all together to make essentially make a court bouillon. You can also add some wine. Uh, and then you need to, uh, that's got to be really intensely flavored, much more for that liquid to impart its flavor on whatever you're cooking, the potato, the corn, the sausage, the seafood. It's got to be almost it's double. Got, it's got to be really strong. And it's mm-hmm. almost exactly right. I mean, you've, you've, you've nailed it. It's almost too strong to eat on its own. And then you add all that stuff in, and that further fortifies that with flavor. And it does pull some of that intense spice and stuff out of, out of the liquid, too, because it's absorbed into the potatoes. Mm-hmm. But, and then typically, if you were doing it for a for a party, you'd keep cooking in that liquid, so you wouldn't okay. ever you wouldn't really ever have any extra liquid to spare because you'd always be adding more water and more spices and more garlic and more lemon to it, and so you could keep the party going. You know, adding more shrimp and potatoes, or you're doing it in sort of one big shot, and then you're pouring it out on the table, and so. You know, it's just that usually you're not doing a crab or shrimp boil for just a couple of people. It's a great yeah. thing for a party, right? So you have, you know, maybe, and I do, I give instructions on how to do a shrimp and a crab boil in the book, but, you know, typically it's going to be for a party scenario. It's, it's a lot of work to do for, a, you know, just a family dinner, but mm-hmm. it'd be fun. And you can, you know, you could put it in pantyhose or, or something like that, which is kind of old school, you know, uh, and and you keep the shrimp and the, and the sausage and the potatoes and the corn and all that stuff in the pantyhose or in the sack. Uh, you can do cheesecloth or whatever whatever, and then you put those into the liquid itself, and then you pull them out, and you let them drain so that you're not, you know, pouring everything out. But shy of that, you're going to have to put a big colander in the sink and pour that whole pot of stuff out into the colander to drain so that the people can eat it. And unless you put that colander over a bucket or a bus tub or some sort of container that's going to hold the liquid, it's going to end up down the drain. So. That's it's really a practicality matter than a than a wasteful matter. So it's either that you're using it again, or that your kitchen setup is such that there's no way you can safely pour off mm-hmm. the, the contents of the crab boil into a container without losing the liquid. I'm satisfied with that. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about the cookbook. Picking the recipes that go in. Uh huh. Did you write all the ones you have and then choose which ones go in? Yeah, I mean that was basically so. The 
publisher and I discussed how many recipes, how big of a book are we going for, and, and there's lots of decisions that go into that. How many photos, how, what's the end price going to be, is it hardback or softcover, things of that nature. And so once we determined about how many recipes we wanted, then I started, I did sort of like a brainstorming session where I just started writing and I wrote down everything that absolutely had to be in there. And I've, of course, because it's a restaurant cookbook, uh, first I went through all the menus, you know, right. dinner menus, lunch menus, brunch menus. Um, and then I looked to things that are sort of re- that maybe aren't on the menu on a regular basis, but specials or dishes that are part of the catering repertoire that either maybe fade in and fade out of the restaurant or that are just part of the catering repertoire. And then there's dishes that I felt that we needed to round it out. Uh, a lot of those came in the form of, of specials that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, some of the fish dishes and meat dishes aren't on the menu all the time, but are, you know, in rotation to some degree or not in terms of showing up as specials. So things like the you know, prosciutto wrap cod or the seared salmon. These are all dishes that I've run in specials, both at Hattie's and in my past life. I mean, you know, I was a, ran a restaurant group in Seattle and worked in New York in the high end uh, and was in the high end restaurant game for my entire career until we came to Saratoga and bought Hattie's. So, you know, I've had a, a lot of experience in those high end white tablecloth restaurants where the food is a little bit more refined. And, and I've brought some of those uh, techniques and, and ingredients and styles of cooking to, to Hattie's and, you know, they needed to be represented. And then we took a look at each of the categories. We decided how we wanted to break apart the restaurant, you know, earth and air, right. uh, oceans, rivers, ponds, you know, you need to have some sort of way to organize the recipes. Uh, and then I wanted to provide balance within those categories. So, um, once I narrowed down to a section and we had maybe, let's say 15 recipes in the, the earth and air section, then I made sure that we had a nice balance of, of pork and chicken and some sort of other game, you know, be it steak or, you know, venison or whatever. And mm-hmm. and that, you know, uh, some things got tossed out because I didn't think it really spoke to the audience of the book. You know, you have to think about your audience when you're mm-hmm. writing a book and who's going to be buying it. And, and uh, all those things need to work in concert if the book's going to be successful. So, um, you know, we started with a big list and then sort of narrowed it down and refined it. And just like writing, you know, it needs to be you know, constantly evaluated and re-looked <laughs> at, re-edited and edited again and edited again. And, and then we came up with a nice balance. And then we, um, and also was thinking about pictures too. You know, that was, that was in the background, you know, right. how are pictures going to translate? Like, uh, a lot of gumbos are kind of brown and you, know, you, can't, you can't have, you can't have, you know, five brown soupy shots in a row. You know, that's just not, that's not very exciting. Brown visually. soup so, number yeah. one. Yeah, brown, soup exactly. number five. Exactly. So, um, that's really was the, the methodology behind it. So there's enough for a sequel. There is enough for a sequel. Yeah, there's definitely enough for a sequel. Well, I'm amazed because this book is pretty thick. Oh, so if, if there were things that were omitted and there's still room for yeah. a sequel, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's It's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's been a long time coming. It was a process and... and uh, you know, we first thought about doing it a number of years ago after the Food Network exposure. Uh, you know, everybody was really on me to crank out a book while the iron was hot. And it was certainly sound advice. I mean, I couldn't argue that it wasn't the right move. But I just honestly, I just didn't have the motivation to it. We were, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had seen a big increase in business at the restaurant. We were very busy. And, you know, I wanted to take it seriously. And I kind of felt like if I just sort of did it to ride the coattails of some current success that, you know, in some ways it might not be as authentic as it should be. And, and Hattie's is a special place and uh, it's a special story and I wanted to pay respects and homage to Miss Hattie as well 
And, you know, even though I didn't voice it at the time as a, as a reason why I didn't want to do it, it was in the background that, you know, I didn't want to crank out this cookbook really fast uh, to catch a, an opportune time uh, and then have the first book, you know, not resonate, you know, as well as I thought that it should. And, you know, I didn't want to skim the surface of the story. And, and uh, you know, people were saying, oh, we just have a ghostwriter do it and just crank it out. And I was just <laughs> like, you know, that's... That's not really the way I want to approach things. I'm not one to not take the the brunt of the work myself, and uh, you know, it took a few years later, but in the end, it's I think it's a product that we're very proud of. It's the book looks great. Uh, it's been very well received. You know, we just got back from a cook tour and uh, from a cookbook tour in the South, and that was a blast. Uh, so you know, it's being put up for a couple of awards. So um, that's great. You know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. So I want to ask you real quick because I know I have to go about the fast casual you mentioned uh-huh. outside. How long have you had that? So that's been open for five years, almost okay. six years now. And uh, we have the original restaurant, and then we have a stand at the track that we've had for almost, I think this will be the 11th year that we've had it at the track. And that's a very stripped-down version of Hattie's. So we just do a couple of products. We do the fried chicken, the fried chicken sandwich, and a couple of our cold salads, the cucumber salad and the coleslaw, and brownies and watermelon. And that's been the formula at the track for a decade, and it's just the place is super busy. Yeah. It's very popular, uh, and we've had a lot of success with it. And my wife and I were, were hungry for another project, and we thought that, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try to blend the downtown restaurant with the chicken shack at the at the track, with the track shack, we call it, and do, sort of do a fast, casual version of it, where it wasn't the full-blown sit-down, but it was more of a, of a upscale fast food, for lack of a better term, fast casual, you know, sort of a Chipotle-esque, you mm-hmm. know, sort of thing where you're applying some of the same principles that would take the the process in a sit, full sit-down restaurant to a faster mm-hmm. service model. Um and uh, so we took the fried chicken sandwich, which was really the cornerstone of the track shack, the fried chicken, and we expanded to some other items, some grilled chicken sandwiches that were, that are delicious. You know, we, we brine the chicken breast and garlic and rosemary and thyme and sage and, and lemon juice and uh, a solution of salt and sugar. Mm-hmm. And that sits there for a day. And then we grill that and we cover it with a white barbecue sauce, which is basically a mayonnaise and vinegar and spices-based sauce. And uh, we do salads, and we do chicken salad, and we do, you know, green leafy salads, and we do specials like, you know, we'll do a, a sausage and peppers, but it's sort of a Cajun style with andouille and, and, and uh, things of that nature. And really tried to sort of make it based on the original restaurant and support the original restaurant, but also have its own identity. Um, it's a labor of love as well, and, and I'll be up there. I've got to get up there and work the work the line up there tonight. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. We have, we have a good time with it, and they're both you know unique to themselves. That's great. I'll have to try it sometime. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have a funny story to end us on with? A funny story. So... You know, pimento cheese is something that I've been I've been trying to bring up to the the north and really try to promote the virtues of pimento cheese. And pimento cheese is sort of the the I call it the peanut butter of the South because it's sort of what you would you know if you came in from school and you were hungry and you wanted a little something to eat before you ran back outside and play. You know, up here, you know your your mom might take a piece of uh, bread and slather some peanut butter in there and fold it over and send you out the door with the, with the peanut butter, right? And so in the South. You know, and in my family, even growing up, even though we we didn't live in the South a whole lot, my whole family's from the South, and so we sort of carried pimento cheese with us wherever we were. <laughs> and so that was sort of what we got. We got pimento cheese, and so we were all together. My family was together in uh, in Maine about six or seven years ago, 
and we decided that we were going to have a, a, you know, the topic of pimento cheese came up, and then, of course, that went to who makes the best pimento cheese in the family. <laughs> and so then we all, you know, and this is a small little island that has no cars, and, and we were staying in a, in a house. We rented a house where we could all fit. There's about 10 or 15 of us. And, you know, there's no grocery store. There's no cars on this island. There's no nothing on this island. It's just houses and, and water. And so we decided we are going to have a pimento cheese contest. So we all, you know, took the ferry back across to the mainland, <laughs> got in our cars, went to the store, Everybody got their ingredients. And we came back to the house and we had, you know, this sort of pimento cheese contest to see who who made the best pimento cheese. And, and uh, you know, we sort of declared it a draw in the interest of family peace. But, <laughs> you know, the real benefit was that we had, you know, gobs of pimento cheese for the rest of the week. So it was sort of as a win-win for everybody. And, you know, some people are really purists like myself. I really take it seriously and I don't think you ought to mess with the formula of pimento cheese. <laughs> my uncle, who I was just with, and he lives in Sewanee, Tennessee now, and, and I was just with him and my cousin, uh, on this book tour, and he had a big bowl of pimento cheese in the fridge, and you know he was even cracking jokes about about my pimento cheese, and he said, you know, oh the book's great, but I, you know I don't know about the pimento cheese because he likes to put jalapenos in his pimento cheese, oh, okay. which I think I mean I like spice, I'm fine with it, but you know I don't know about it in the pimento cheese. I mean there's other <laughs> if you want spice, there's other places to put it. So so that's uh, you know that's pimento cheese is something that that's always a source of a of good conversation in my family. We had a lot of pie uh, contests at Thanksgiving and then in ties. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, adds a little adds a little competition to the to the dinner. And as long a little, as they get eaten, that's all. Yeah, that some some family ribbing's good for good for conversation. Mm-hmm. You know? All right. Well, Jasper, thanks so much for coming in. No, it's my pleasure. Thank absolutely. You. Thank you for having me. That was Jasper Alexander, chef and co-owner of Hattie's Restaurant in Saratoga Springs, New York. This has been Food Friday Leftovers. I'm Ashley Kinsey, and I'm Dave Hopper. Be sure to check out Vox Pop Food Friday every Friday at 2 p.m. on WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Jessica Blaustein Marshall. Our theme is Beach Disco by Dougie Wood. Food Friday Leftovers is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. And tune in next week to see what else we find in the fridge.